Koppel, host of the Time for Coffee podcast, where you get firsthand career advice into the jobs and industries that interest you the most. And before we start today's show, I have a quick favor to ask you. If you haven't already, I'd be incredibly grateful if you give us a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you're like me, you need to do it now because you'll forget later and because it's the best way to help others who may be in search of career advice to find this free resource. So press pause if you haven't done it and do it right now. I'll wait. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about what it's like to work in venture capital, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest is the COO of Falk Ventures, the VC arm of legendary sports agent David Falk. But before I introduce you to Garrett Clue, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's newsletter that gives you first-hand career insights into jobs and industries from the people like Garrett who are actually working in them. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there. Now, my venture-aspiring venti coffee lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew, because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Garrett Clue, the Chief Operating Officer of Falk Ventures. Garrett is also the co-founder of Huddle Sports Partners, a high-touch sports tech advisory firm, a frequent guest speaker, lecturer, and panelist in the sports tech industry. Garrett was a six-time U.S. National Rowing Team member, a world champion, and He's a former Olympian who represented the U.S. at the 2004 Olympics in Athens, Greece, as a member of the U.S. rowing team. Over the last 25 years or so, Garrett's professional journey has crisscrossed the sports world, the business world, and public service, proving that where you start your life after graduating from college is just a first step in a decades-long professional journey that will likely take you to places you could never have imagined. Garrett, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I'm ready to go, Andrea. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Thank you so much for having me on. But not caffeinated. You know, so I drink coffee and I love coffee. And for some reason, I switched to decaffeinated coffee about 10 years ago. And I don't really know why I did that, but I did it. And so now if I have a little bit of coffee, I turn into like the most productive person on the planet Earth. So I use it in case of emergency, break glass kind of a situation. So but nice. today I'm, I'm energized and I'm ready for you. Awesome. Awesome. So I would like to kick off our career chat this morning, Garrett, by reading what you featured in your about section on LinkedIn, because in my opinion, it is a super inspirational personal mission statement. You say you are, and I quote, an optimist and lifelong learner, a win-win generator, a believer that life 
is fundamentally a meritocracy, an embracer of challenge, a fan of decisiveness, someone who is intolerant to breaches of integrity, who is not risk averse, who values commitment and loyalty, a valued team member, an Olympian, a possibilitarian. So first time I'd heard that one, a just to see if I could do it screenplay writer, someone who aspires to change the game and is hard at work to becoming or become the best possible version of himself. Have you always been an optimist, Garrett? I think I have. And I heard a quote, and I I can't remember the source, and it really stuck with me. And it was that only optimism is compatible with success, right? And, and And it just, for whatever reason, I heard it decades ago. It was actually Sumner Redstone. I was, I had, was at an event where he was speaking and he said something that was akin to that and it just really stuck with me. And having had the uh, career as an athlete, you know, you have to be optimistic. When, you're, when you think you understand the odds of making an Olympic team, you can't be pessimistic. You'll never survive. And in the middle of you know, impossible training and, and whatnot, only optimism really is compatible with success. And is the possibilitarian a companion? To optimism? Is this something that you have actually worked hard to cultivate in yourself? Or do you think it just came naturally? I'm not sure of the source of it. I would say that, you know, I actively work, you know, and think about whatever I'm thinking about how to make it bigger, right? Not to be bound by what's been done or how it's been done. And that probably came from my father, if I think about it, really to remove the frame and the edges of anything I'm thinking about and see if I can make whatever it is bigger and better, more bold. Well, I want to flash back to when you were living under your father's roof, under your parents' roof, when you were a little boy, because I think one of the common threads running through your professional life has been your experience as an athlete, someone operating at a very high level who is only seeing possibility. Some might say, at the very highest level of athleticism as an Olympian. And I think that the year was 1984 or thereabouts, and you were a little boy either watching the Olympics on TV. This was the Summer Olympics in Los Angeles, or because you grew up in LA, maybe you were even there in person, and you were watching the opening ceremony. Do you remember what ran through your mind back then, Garrett, when you were watching that ceremony? I, I do. I do. I remember where I was standing. So I was living in Santa Monica and the Olympic torch ran down San Vicente. Those of you that know Santa Monica know, know that street. And I remember feeling something as a nine-year-old boy that just really was inspiring and not really having any context for what that was. And then many days later, I watched as Joan Benoit ran by during the marathon on her way to uh, you know, winning the Olympic gold medal. And having the two weeks of the games there and having watched it on TV and been feeling a person, I turned to my brother and I said, one day I'm going to do this. And I was immediately like, you know, laughed out of the room and probably beat up. And, you know, it took 20 years and three different sports, but it was because I had that proximity and because I was affected by it. And I think this is one of the things that, you know, the Olympics for me is really important to evolve, extend, expand the power of this to inspire nine-year-olds all over the world, you know, to try to do something great. And even for those that, you know, fall short, it's still the journey of 
of trying to do something that is so much bigger than yourself is so worthwhile and something that we should really embrace. I'm sure I was left out of the room too. And I remember being a little girl watching the movie National Velvet (laughs) and saying, I want to be an Olympic horseback rider, but I never did it, Garrett. I never found that fire, tapped into it and kept it burning for another 20 years the way you did. You mentioned it was across three sports. So how did you discover rowing? Because I know that wasn't the first sport that you tried. Yeah, the first one was more of a lark. I, you know, I thought I wanted to be a downhill skier. It, it, that wasn't really realistic. But what I, when I started to actually play some organized sports, which I was very late to the game, it did, I didn't start until maybe second or third year of high school. I started playing volleyball. And I thought, okay, this is it. This is how I'm going to go to the Olympics in volleyball. I'm really excited about this. And I was going to school in Seattle, Washington area. And I got like pretty good for that area. And then when I went to San Diego for school, turns out that I wasn't any good at volleyball. So what, what was good in Seattle was not good in Southern California. And when I got cut from the volleyball team, the rowing coach said, Hey, you know, do you want to try rowing? And I thought, okay, I know it's difficult. It'll keep me in shape for the next volleyball tryout. That was my rationale. I had no intention of like becoming a rower. I just thought, at least I know I'll be in shape. So for the next year, I'm going to go do volleyball again. And that's how, how I started did you rowing. meet? Sorry to interrupt. I was going to say, how did you come across the rowing coach? That doesn't seem to be like the the water is way over there and the no, indoor. So they, yeah. So it, like most rowing coaches just walk around campus looking for tall people, and that's how they recruit them. I was at a club program, so this wasn't a varsity sport. And he found me on campus and said, "Hey, you know, why don't you give this a shot?" And that foundationally changed the trajectory of my entire life was just by getting into that boat. And I wasn't very good when I started. I think a lot of people think, oh, that must be where the story goes. I was a natural and I really wasn't. But at some point, I had to make a decision. Was am I going to go back to volleyball or am I going to stick with rowing? And, you know, after rowing for most of that first year, I said, okay, you know, I got to double down here and um, I got to figure out how, how I can get to the Olympic team rowing. Outside of rowing, when you were in the classroom, you majored in kinesthesiology. Is that right? Kinesiology, yeah. How do you pronounce it? Kinesiology. Kinesiology. Did you know? I can't even pronounce it. Did you know what you wanted to do with that degree when you graduated? No, no, I had no idea. Um, It was connected to sports. It was sort of like an exercise physiology degree. And that was useful. I mean, I was using what I was learning in my training. So it was the most useful thing that I could be studying, but I really had no idea what I wanted to do. I really did. So what did you do after you graduated? I started training full time. But keep in mind, like I, I had been working since I was 13 years old. I've had a zillion jobs, everything from developing f- photographs when that was a thing to a mason. You know, I worked in, as a mason tender. I've worked in, in restaurants in almost every capacity from fine dining to fast food. I had been working a lot and I decided that when I graduated from university that I was going to train as hard as I could for two years. And if I couldn't make the team in two years, then I will have done everything that I could do. And at that point, it didn't make sense for me to continue. So while I was training, I continued to work at restaurants and some, doing some cooking stuff at a local place. And it took every day of those two years. I mean, it really did. I was, I was at the end of all of my options. And I sort of finally broke through in the last possible minute and made my first team in 1999. 
And so you, did you compete in the 2000 Olympics or was it I not? I, you didn't. So, so, so I, I made the, the national team in 1999 and we won the world championships, which was an unbelievable accomplishment. And I thought this must set me up really great for the Olympics in Sydney. And that year was just so intense and there were so many good guys and I tried as hard as I could and I didn't make the team in Sydney and was near, I mean, I nearly made it, but just didn't make it. I was, you know, I didn't have enough experience. I wasn't ready yet. And then it was the sobering decision. Okay. Looking down the barrel of four years of, of training, I never for once hesitated. I knew as soon as I didn't make the team in 2000, that I was going to be the first one to show up for the next campaign in 2004. And you made that team. What was the experience like? Was it the way you had imagined it as a nine-year-old? I only wish that that's the way that it was. I was the last person on the last possible day to be named to the Olympic rowing team. It came down to me and one other guy who I'm still very good friends with. And we were dead even. And it was a coin flip, basically, to decide who gets to go to the Olympics. And consider, like, I had been training and thinking about this as a, for 20 years. And it came down to me and one other rower. And it, you know, ultimately, the three other guys in the boat decided that it was a little bit more stable with me, even though the times were the same. And they thought I had maybe a little bit more leadership. Now, the, the person that I, that I beat out for that seat ended up competing in Beijing and winning a medal. So that part of the story is great. It was a really hard scrabble journey for me. A lot of what we're hearing about in, in terms of training environments and how toxic and I lived through that for the better part of a decade. It was making the Olympic team was an enormous accomplishment. The way that it happened was suboptimal, but I, I you know, wouldn't change anything. And what about the experience when you were there competing? So I tell people it was like the best and the worst experience at the same time because we had all won the world championship. We'd all done very well internationally. I don't think I'd ever finished lower than seventh at any race ever. And for whatever reason, this boat just didn't go. And so it was really difficult to have that be the end of a career. And there's no asterisk. There's just, there's just a result by your name for the forever. And no one says, how did you arrive at that? They just, you know, you know, ninth place is ninth place. And that's a tough way to end a career when you know that you're capable of so much more. And rowing is a sport of combination. Sometimes it just clicks and sometimes it doesn't. The other three guys, I love them. They're great. It just, for whatever reason, this combination didn't go. But being at the games and, you know, rowing finishes in the first week. So we have the, the whole second week to sort of enjoy the games. And somebody gave me some advice and said, listen, regardless of how you do, make sure that you put everything in a box and put a, you lock it up and deal with it later. And while you're there, enjoy it and like really enjoy it to the maximum that you can. I took that advice to heart. And for that next week, just really had a blast. And every morning was like Christmas morning, being there, being around all the other athletes, 10,000 of the best athletes in the world, going to events. And it was really a special, special time. I'm so glad to hear that. And I'm sure you've heard this a million times, but my goodness coming in ninth when you are competing against the best in the world is pretty darn good, Garrett. I mean, it's, um, I know it's little comfort to you, but from where I sit, it's still pretty darn amazing. I appreciate that. The tough part was, is that in the US, everyone trains for the eight person boat and the eight set the world record and won the Olympic gold medal. And we were all about this close to being in that boat. And so 
it was a little thornier to, to have that be the experience and to say, God, we, we were that close. And if any one of us were in that boat, we'd probably get a similar result. But, you know, it is, it is what it is. And I wouldn't change a thing. When you and I met a couple of months ago, thanks to Steve Rimland, the wonderful Steve Rimland, I remember we had a brief exchange about what it is like when you are an athlete, whether an Olympian, a world champion, national champion, or professional player who transitions from that world to the civilian life, (laughs) to being just a, a regular guy or gal who works out for fitness, but not to win whatever the competition. What advice do you have, Garrett, for collegiate athletes, not even those who go on to become professional athletes or Olympians, but those who played as little kids and then through high school and college, and then it's over. What advice do you have to offer them about how they can make that mental and emotional transition and maybe how they can then sell themselves to future employers and hiring managers based on that experience that they had, their athletic experience? Yeah, it's a really great question. And many athletes struggle when they retire from sport. And I think that part of that is because the highs are so high and the lows are so low. And we've talked about this a little bit. Part of the challenge is chasing after the same feeling that you had when you were, you know, running into the stadium on a Saturday football, college football game or winning, you know, whatever your sport is. And it took me a while to sort of understand that chasing after that feeling is not healthy because the world, you know, 90, whatever percent of the world doesn't exist in that area of excitement and the lows, right? Which is the lows, you know, we avoid those. But the point is recognizing that it's okay it's okay to not have the highs be as high. And there's still a very fulfilling life that's in front of you. I sort of felt like I wandered the desert for a while. And, you know, I knew that I was capable of doing something that I thought was remarkable in terms of professionally, but I didn't know how to frame. I didn't, to your, to your point, I think the advice I have for college athletes is that, you know, really understand how to frame the characteristics that made you a good athlete. And it's not just, oh, I'm hardworking and I'm a team. You know, you have to get, you got to have to go a layer deeper and think about what are the things that come naturally to you? What's easy for you that you see that's hard for somebody else? And start there and start to unpack that and start to think about what is it about that thing that will allow me to build a foundation that I can start a narrative to a hiring manager and say, look, this has always come really naturally to me. And it took me a while to figure out what that thing was, but it it actually was someone else telling me. Someone else actually said, you know what? You're pretty good at this. You know, it's not that easy. And I thought, oh, I thought everyone sort of has the same aptitude for this. And I was sort of blown away by it. What was that thing? So business strategy has just always come very naturally. And I don't know where it came from. I don't know why, but I'd had friends that were close friends that when I was rowing and they said like, you know, you should be on the board of directors. You're really good at the way you think about this. And I, and I ended up on the board of directors for U.S. Rowing. And I ended up as a consultant for startups. And it was something that just, for whatever reason, it came naturally. And so I started to build on that. Okay, here's a thing that comes really naturally. Don't take half-court shots when you can make layups, right? 
mean, half court shots are great, but the high probability shots of things that come easy to you. And if half court shots, if, if you're Steph Curry and half court shots come easy, take half court shots. But for most of us, they don't come easy, right? So it's about understanding the things that come easy and framing your characteristics, framing the qualities in a way that makes you unique, not just the typical sort of axioms of, oh, I was an athlete and you know, I'm a hard work and teamwork and you know, those things. Those are all powerful, but they're table stakes. You're in the same boat as every other athlete when you say those things. You want to try to do is you want to try to distinguish yourself from the group. What really stood out to me from your story of discovery of rowing and why you decided to go all in there was when you said it did not come easily. It wasn't something. You weren't just like, pardon the expression, a fish to water. You had to work really hard at it. And as somebody who's been a hiring manager, that's the kind of person I'm looking for. I am looking for somebody who knows their strengths, but I'm also looking for somebody who has determination and grit to be able to gut it out because the way that you grow in life is by pushing yourself outside your comfort zone. I couldn't agree more. And I think that's one of the things that I think athletes, not only are they coachable, and this is why I like to work with athletes, they're comfortable being uncomfortable. And that's really important because there's lots of situations where the world changes dramatically and you're in a new spot doing a new thing that you didn't, you weren't prepared for. And knowing that you have the confidence to be able to not just survive, but sort of thrive through that, I think comes through that the comfort of being uncomfortable. Somebody should write that book, actually. I think that would be, you know, there's a whole science behind that. I love that. In that wonderful mission statement that you wrote in your LinkedIn about section, you talk about being someone who is not risk averse. How important has taking risks been in your professional and personal achievements? I knew the odds of making an Olympic team were infinitesimally small, right? Just it's an impossible thing. It's like saying you want to be an astronaut or president of the United States and putting my entire 20s on hold. That's a pretty big risk, right? The end of 20 years, it came down to a dead even race with another guy. So I was that close to not making it. And so I have always had this sense of if you work hard enough and if you put yourself in the right position and you show up, this is what I say in in that LinkedIn statement, is that life is a meritocracy. It may not happen when you want it to happen, but over a long enough period of time, the world recognizes work. If I somehow stop believing that, then my whole sort of world crumbles on itself. So I have to, I mean, everything I've done is, is based upon that. So it's a combination of taking risks and then putting in the hard work to make it happen. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. That's, that's it. Just the risk taking by itself is a fool's errand, right? You need to understand. I work with entrepreneurs now. And and the reason that I do is because it's the closest thing to to saying, I want to be an Olympian is to say, I'm going to start a business knowing the odds. They're just really small that you're going to IPO or get acquired. And I love that there's an irrational dream that I get to help somebody on their journey. It's just like me. I identify with that, that you understand the risk and you understand the odds and you say, okay, I'm going to somehow beat those odds and I'm going to create a roadmap so that I'm going to put myself on that path. And then life happens and lots of things happen and some people don't make it and most don't. 
you know, and that's just the way that it is. But I love that's the spirit of that, which is a, a big reason of why I got involved in the startup and venture capital and entrepreneurship. Well, before you got involved in all of that, or at least in a big way, after you transitioned out of the Olympics and rowing, you ended up going into public service, into the police academy. How did you make that decision, Garrett? I wanted to do something to serve the community that I had lived in. I wasn't, you know, I didn't go to an Ivy League school. I didn't have a job at Goldman Sachs waiting for me. There wasn't people beating down my door saying, here's an opportunity for you. And I looked at that profession and said, this is an opportunity for me to do something that has a positive impact on the world and to make my community in San Diego a little bit better. And I thought, I'm young enough that if I don't like it after a few years, I'll do something else. There's nothing that binds me to this decision for the rest of my life. So I sort of gave myself that escape hatch. And I, you know, I did it for three, three plus years. And it was amazing work. I worked with some great people. And at the end of the day, I felt like I was putting on a costume every day. And it wasn't me. It was a job that I enjoyed doing. And it was a fascinating laboratory to study human behavior. But I couldn't project myself into the future and say, in 20 years, if I had promoted from, you know, officer to sergeant, lieutenant, whatever, it didn't, I felt like a misalignment for me. And so I, I made a decision, you know, I made a decision to, to go back into sport, which I needed a break from. Some of the advice that I give to students is sometimes you have to do the thing that you don't like to find the thing that you do. Mic drop. The way I describe it, I don't know if this will resonate with you, is that it helps if you adopt the mindset of a mad scientist. Because what does a mad scientist do to find the right formula? She tests, she experiments, she puts different chemicals in her test tubes and sometimes it blows up. It's not a mistake. It's part of the discovery process to find the right formula. That's probably a, a more positive way to frame it. I think that you can be paralyzed into thinking that a decision that you make will be forever. And sometimes it, it is that path. It's the, it's the wrong formula that leads you to the right formula, right? And so you need to experience certain parts of that journey in order to lead you to the on-ramp to the thing that's going to make you the happiest. Exactly. You mentioned you ended up going back into sport. I'm just going to quickly summarize so we can get into the entrepreneurial side. You moved from public service, from the San Diego police force back into the Olympic family as an employee for the U.S. Olympic Committee. You were one of two people selected for the management development program, one of two Olympians selected for that program. And you worked at the Olympic and Paralympic Games in Beijing, Vancouver, and London. And then you made a transition into the private sector. You joined, I believe, 776 Original Marketing. And you built and managed the athlete representation business unit. How did that happen? There's a, a longer story. I'll try to keep it short. But the former CEO of the USOC brought me on board to help him build. And this was my first startup experience. It was a marketing startup. And one of the things that they wanted to do was represent some athletes. And this is going back to what we were previously talking about. Sometimes you have to do the things, <laughs> thing that you don't like to find the thing that you do. I managed an athlete as an agent and realized that this is not something that I want to do, which is 
sort of funny now that I work with David Falk, who, you know, basically invented the, the industry and he's done arguably very well. But it was something that I had no experience in and it was just dropped on my desk. Like, you're here, just do this. And okay, no problem. Let's figure it out. What, what, is, what does this job even do? Like, how, how, where do I start? And I learned a ton and it was interesting. But the value to me was knowing that, okay, this is not something that I want to continue to do. And I think around that same time, you ended up getting a teaching position at the University of Colorado as an adjunct and got your MBA, which is pretty incredible. Is that right? I had convinced myself that I was going to get a working MBA, that I, you know, I was going to be one of those people that I'm going to learn through experience. And that was probably a disservice because... First of all, there's no good time to go to business school. Like it just there isn't. You, you know, there's always something going on. It's whether it's financial or with family or whatever. And I needed someone to tell me that. Like you're never going to find a good time to go. So just you know, sort of suck it up. And if you want to do it, do it now. But I was resistant to the idea, and I, I wanted to sort of be this underdog. Like, oh, I'll get my MBA through life, and that was dumb. That wasn't a smart thing to do. And you know, I ended up in a really unique program that was administrated by George Washington University, switched between Columbia University and UCLA and Anderson. And it was really an amazing experience. I learned a ton and it was, it was definitely the right decision. But going back to school at 39 was, that was a serious decision for me, financially and everything. But it's also where I met my now wife. So I consider it like the most expensive dating program in the world. <laughs> yes, a positive dating experience. So I guess, was it after you graduated from GW that you then became the managing director of Star Angel Network? Is that right? I wish it was that sort of seamless. I graduated from business school and I thought, okay, I've just taken the cap off of my opportunities. Now I'm standing shoulder to shoulder with you know everyone else. And, now I, and so I went and said, you know, I want to get a stamp on my resume. I want to get a Bank of America, UBS. I want to go into finance, Goldman. And, and I went and I had a million interviews and everyone's like, look, you're 41 years old. We can't put you with the incoming class of investment bankers. You literally will, you'll hate it. Like there's no spot for you here. There just doesn't. And I was flexible with one exception is that when someone said, we want to put you with the sports marketing group. And I said, absolutely not. I'm not interested in that. I said, I don't want to be a collectible. I said, I want to be known for, I need these skills and these capabilities that are that are important for my own development. And I don't just want to be a collectible, like the Olympians on the shelf, we bring him down, we have drinks, and then we let the grownups talk about business. And I was hyper aware of that and not sure, I might've been overly resistant to it, but it was important to me. It was important to my own development and my own sort of attitude towards my profession that I wouldn't tell people that I was an Olympian. I would just say, hey, I'm going to have an MBA and a, a weird past. And I would hide it. And people would find out later, oh my God, why didn't you say anything? Because, you know, I, I want to be, judge me on what I'm doing now, not what I did then. And that was important to me. So how did you find your way to star where you were, I guess, beginning to do what you're doing now, which is, but specifically providing professional athletes access to early stage investment opportunities. So while I was looking for work, I sort of dove headfirst into all things entrepreneurship and startup related. And I went to in New York, you can go to three events a night. And I just gave myself an education on 
everything that was started. And I started talking to founders, just, Hey, what do you need help with? Let me help. I'll help for free. You want me to look at your deck? You want me to look at your, you know, your projections? Like, and after a while I started helping a few people and they said, Hey, you're really good at this. Can we pay you? And I said, yes, you can pay me. And then somebody else did and somebody else did. And all of a sudden I had this bespoke like consulting and it came from just me doing the thing that came easy to me and wanting to help first and not ask, but help. And I think that's an important message without, I wasn't looking for professional. I wasn't looking for revenue. I was just, Hey, let me help you because I know that this will help me. You were leading with curiosity. And it really worked out well. And that led me, and I was, I was a member of the Star Angel Network because I had been working with startups and I built this huge network in New York and I built a reputation for myself. They said, Hey, you should come on and be the managing director of this. And it's a bunch of athletes that were investing together. And I was screening the deals. We were doing different things. And that was definitely a, a fundamental stepping stone to where I am now. Do you think you would have been as good at advising professional athletes, Garrett, if you hadn't been a serious athlete yourself? And of course, you weren't advising them on sports. You were advising them on their investments. Absolutely not. There's an unspoken sort of community that when you... And I meet people from you know football, basketball, whatever. When you know that someone's accomplished something remarkable and they know that there's a level, you're automatically at a level and there's a trust there. And it's not to say that you can't build it without that. And lots of people do, but it becomes almost an automatic sense of community that you can really build off of. And, you know, it was unbelievably helpful. And it's also, I'm not like a fanboy, right? It's like, hey, I, we're here to do a job. Like, I don't, let's, let's stay focused on the thing we're trying to do. I don't want an autograph. I'm not trying to, you know, whatever. And they know that and they're not trying to do it. And so that level of respect, makes it really easy. Do you think now that you've been in the startup world for as long as you have, are there any parallels between building a, a company and building or developing yourself as an athlete? Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's massive overlap. And I think it starts with a personal responsibility, right? Every practice is optional. As a CEO or a founder, if you don't do the thing, it won't get done. And so that's not that level of responsibility, not everyone's comfortable for. And that's okay. The world is full of lot, lots of different types of people. But I think that there is sometimes a mismatch of founders that aren't comfortable with that level of responsibility. But I think athletes have this ability to automatically take personal responsibility for the outcomes and, and know that if they don't put the work in, there's not going to be a result. So they can connect. It's easy for us to connect work to value to outcome. You mentioned before various responsibilities that founders have. Could you talk about what your responsibilities are now as the chief operating officer on the venture side of the Falk Enterprises? Sure. So I manage a portfolio of businesses that some that David invested in before I was around and some that we've invested in together. And sometimes I've invested alongside him with these. And those require a certain amount of attention and care and feeding from time to time. And they're all in various stages of taking over the world and going public to struggling and raising money and doing all those things. And so part of my job is to keep my finger on the pulse of what's happening within the portfolio. And more importantly, to find ways to help the companies, right? Because we've put in either real money or a lot of time into these things and we want to return. Like that's, this isn't a charity. So that's part of it. And then 
I spend a lot of time finding interesting things for David to get involved in. And sometimes those are businesses, sometimes they're media projects. We have a business that we're, we're incubating in the video game space that I'm really excited about that we actually founded. And those are the things that I think return value before the financial value. They return value to us in participation and being involved. And so these are the things that are really exciting. And, and I, that's what I spend most of my time on with, when I'm on that side of the fence with Falk Ventures. So what is the profile of the kinds of companies that you look to invest in? And what stage of development are they usually in? So I say broadly sports, media, and entertainment. And typically it's early to mid stage, right? So we're strategic in everything that we do. So we're never just the check. So when we decide to get involved, David will roll up his sleeves and he will, and we will help these companies accelerate in whatever way they need. And David's in a position where it doesn't matter who, who it is. If he calls, whoever's on the other side of the phone still answers. So that's a, an amazing asset to a founder. And typically the companies are, are small and growing. And that's when we can have the most impact. If they're just about to go public, there's not a lot we can do. We have a couple that are, but you know, we want to have the most impact and we demand a premium for that. I mean, I can command a premium for David because he's going to put in the work and it's going to return a certain amount of value. And what's interesting is that David can make one phone call and accelerate a business six months. And the founder will say, well, it only took him five minutes to do that. Why should we pay him this much? And he said, it took him 50 years to build that network so that when he makes that call, the other person responds, listens, and does the thing. So don't think of it as like how much time he's putting in. Connect it to the value on the other side. That's the thing that's important. But not every founder gets it. And I, you know, I understand it. Could you give us an example, Garrett, of one of the startups that you've worked with maybe recently in sports, media, entertainment, and why you felt it was a good investment and what you did to bring it to the next level? Yeah. So we had a business we were involved in called Block 6 Analytics, which does advanced marketing analytics for sports. And we got involved several years ago and the business had already been approached by a number of different acquirers. So we thought, okay, there's here's to be product market fit here that there's interest in, in bolting this onto an existing business. So that was like number one. Number two, it was an area that David knows very well, sports marketing as the inventor of brand Jordan and many other brands. This is something that he could really help with. And he has a school at, at Syracuse, the fall college, and students that could help with this. So it, it ticked a number of boxes. And David got on the phone and he started calling brands and sports properties and setting up meetings. And the company eventually got acquired. So you know that's the kind of impact that we can have. And David <laughs> negotiated the acquisition deal. So I mean... Who better could you have to do something like that than David Falk? It's just, you know, he was in good hands. What do you think most startup founders get wrong? Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> that's, that's probably a whole podcast in and of itself. I don't typically like to focus on the negatives, but I would say there's probably an underestimation of how long and how hard it is. I think that it's too easy to turn on Shark Tank and see, oh... And not really know that these people have mortgaged their future for this one idea. And it's not just a five-minute vignette that shows this is the reality. It is every business that's been successful probably almost went out of business a dozen times. 
and was not paying employees and was scraping to get the next round together and something happened and the market changed or X, Y, and Z, or going back to grit and finding a way, finding a way no matter what. I think those are the ones that figure out how to succeed. But I think that there's an underestimation that this is a journey that you should just, you should just be prepared that it's going to take probably seven years. And it's going to be the most difficult seven years of anything that you've ever done. And it's going to challenge you in ways that you can't even possibly imagine. And you got to look yourself in the mirror and say, is that for me? And it's not for a lot of people. And that's okay. That is 100% okay. There's no judgment statement there. It's just, I see a lot of people that aren't comfortable in that environment. And they're sort of trying to convince themselves that they are. And those, I've seen that movie before. I know how that (laughs) Yeah, probably not well. So... I'm just going to pivot now into a few final questions that I try to ask all of my guests, Garrett. The first one is, if you could share the best career advice you've ever gotten. Yeah. So someone much smarter than me said that being happy in a job has three different elements. If you love the people that you work with, you love what you do, or you get paid really, really, really well. So if you have zero of those things, forget about it. It's not really a job. If you have one of those things, you're in a job that's unsustainable. If you have two, it's sustainable. If you have three, that's your dream job. And I use that as I've used that in my past as sort of a framework. And to just to check in with myself and like, okay, what am I what do I have? I'm not getting paid an exorbitant amount of money. I love what I do. I love okay, I'm in a sustainable situation. And it's purposefully overly simple. But I think it's a good to remember the things that are important, right? And there's lots that go into each one of those things. What does it mean to be happy with the people you work? What does it mean to love what you do? You know, I think we can all sort of agree on the last one, which is like, you know, when you're getting paid really well for something. Like, and that's, but, 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 but part of the message is, is that just having one of those things is not enough for a sustainable situation, right? And I think I've been in situations where I've had one and it doesn't end well, right? But we learn along the way. And I think the other thing is, and I give this advice to, you know, to students, it started as the four H's, right? And I don't know if, if I came up with this or if I took it from somebody and made it into my own. But I said that the ideal employee is happy, helpful, humble, and hungry. So I started there. And then it expanded to six H's. And I added hardworking and hustle. If you walk into any job application, regardless of your, your qualifications, and you, you have these qualities, they're going to want to hire you. If you can articulate why you're hardworking or that you're humble or you know, that you're hungry, if you're able to articulate these things, they're going to want to find a place for you. And I think it's, again, overly simple, but I sort of like the alliteration part of it. But it's, for me, I think it's helpful. And I've had students come back to me and say, God, you know, I really kept that in mind when I went into my interview. People don't want to work with people that aren't happy. It's like, they just don't. <laughs> I totally agree. And I would add a seventh. Uh oh. High energy. I love when I'm around people. It doesn't have to be like in your face energy, but just where you can, energy is, is tangible. You can feel it. If someone is drained, they may be happy, but you're not feeling the vibrations. That's great. And I think that. There's people that pull energy and there's people that give energy. And you want to be a person that gives energy without being metaphysical. Just we all know people that every time you're around them, you feel better. 
And yeah. that's, that's the, those are the kinds of qualities that people want to be, want to be around. That's, it's what creates productivity. A hundred percent. EV, human EV charging stations. That's what I call them. <laughs> so two final questions real quick here. If you could share a time in your professional life, let's say post-Olympics, when you failed or struggled in a big way, maybe face-planted. But the most important part of this story, Garrett, is how you persevered and if there was a lesson that you learned in the process. Yeah, and I alluded to this earlier. So when I graduated from business school, I thought, okay, I've done all the things that the world wants me to do. And now I just sit back and let the job opportunities, you know, and that wasn't the case. And I really did struggle. I moved to New York and it was difficult. I just spent over $100,000 on an education and it was difficult to be in that situation and to start rethink my decisions and my choices and think, did I just waste all this time and money for a thing that's not producing any outcome or value, perceived value at this moment? And I just had to stay the course and just keep thinking about, okay, again, life is a meritocracy. If I work hard enough, eventually somebody in the world will recognize this and there will be opportunity. But I'll tell you, it was dark. I mean, it was hard for me. And it's particularly hard as somebody who, you know, fancies himself, you know, a high achiever to be in a place where I can't get a friggin' job. Like, are you serious? I mean what was I doing wrong? And I tried different approaches and I, you know, talked to different people and I was getting the interviews and it was just like, it was really hard. And there wasn't probably an opportunity for me to sort of blow it up and say, let's just go back into sport. This is a layup. This is easy. You know, you could just probably be a coach and that's your life forever. And I wouldn't do that. And I just, it was the determination and the grit to just sort of say, there has to be another side of this that I'm going to find a way through the wall, around the wall, over the wall or under the wall. And the wall exists for the other people, not for me, right? And that's what I did. But it was painful. There's no question. It was very difficult and very painful to sort of go through that. And my own psychology was really affected. And it's not so much ego. It's, it's connected to ego. It was just difficult. It's, just, it's hard to be in that position when you've accomplished so much and had a very specific goal. And I was like, this is how I'm going to do it. And this is the way. And then reality was different. And I had to adjust. And, and so how long did it take? for you to find it that probably took close to a year. It reminds me a little bit about what might have happened if you had decided not to sign up for another 4 years after you didn't make the Olympic team in 1999. It's always hard to prove the counterfactual, but yeah, I can, I see I see where you're drawing that that conclusion and I waver. And I don't waver. I don't usually waver. I have very strong conviction I'm sure my wife would agree. And I was really challenged. I was very challenged in that moment to try to figure out, okay, how do I turn this story into something that has a good ending? And it wasn't clear. And you followed your curiosity, right? Mm -hmm. And led with your offer. Always. To help people. Help first and fill the bank of karma. And at some point, there's going to be a withdrawal. It may not come when you want it. But at some point, there will be a withdrawal from the karma bank. But just make sure that you're making deposits like all the time. Such great advice. Final T4C question, Garrett. If you could go back to San Diego State and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? 
I don't want to frame this in regret because I think that it's not useful. It's like regret is not a useful emotion for me. I probably would say, just try to enjoy the process a little bit more. We become so focused on the outcome and the endpoint, and it's blinding sometimes that you're missing the best stuff. I'm so grateful to have the teammates that I had for so many years and, and to see them from time to time. And we went through this really special thing together. A lot of it was really terrible, but some of it was fun. But probably advise myself just to say, take a moment from time to time and allow yourself to feel good about where you are. And don't worry, you're not going to get lazy. It's not going to destroy your ambition. It's okay to check in and say, Hey, you know what? Like I'm doing well here. This is all working and it's okay. But the way that I'm wired, it just, that wasn't who I was at the time. I try to do a better job of that now. And even still, I'm, I'm still really, you know, super ambitious and I'm always looking forward, but having a five month old keeps you grounded in the day to day. So that is, that's changing things dramatically. I was just thinking that, yeah, about 18 years from now, I wonder what college is going to look like. (laughs) Oh boy. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder what it's going to cost, but. uh... Well, there's that too. There's that too. Well, Garrett, I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee today with me and the T4C community. This was just wonderful. It was my pleasure. And it was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me on. And I hope that there's something that people can take away that's of some value. Thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of T4C. And if you're interested in learning more about my coaching services for confused college students and recent grads, feel free to check out the Time for Coffee website under the coaching tab at time, the number four, coffee.org or text me at 202-236-5712. That's 202-236-5712. Thank you.